0: The U.S. Food and Drug Administration Center for Drug Evaluation and Research is sponsoring a public workshop on rare disease advocacy Monday, October 30th at the FDA's White Oak Campus in Silver Springs, Maryland. This workshop builds upon previous CEDAR patient advocacy public workshops and is primarily for the rare disease community members to help them effectively understand FDA's needs for enhanced drug development. This workshop will include case studies demonstrating the Beneficial overlap of effective advocacy techniques and FDA regulations in rare disease drug development. The workshop is free, but you must register in advance to attend. The event is co sponsored by Global Genes. To learn more or to register, go to globalgenes.org forward slash FDA workshop. I'm Daniel Levine. And this is Cast. Claire Wineland has defied the odds. At 20, she's lived more than twice as long as doctors told her parents she would. Born with cystic fibrosis, Wineland has spent about a quarter of her life in hospitals, and her daily health regimen is a demanding routine of treatments, medications, and oxygen. Despite her health problems, though, she's learned to find purpose by helping others. At the age of 13, she founded Claire's Place Foundation to provide support to CF patients and their families. She's also touched many others, with her YouTube videos and public talks, where she speaks about her illness and dying with charm, humor, and a life-affirming wisdom. We spoke to Weinland, a 2017 Global Genes Champion of Hope Awardee, about her life with cystic fibrosis, what it's taught her about living, and how finding a greater purpose than treating her own illness transformed her life. Claire, thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: We're going to talk about cystic fibrosis, Claire's Place Foundation, and, and the work you do. Uh, let's start off with cystic fibrosis itself. What is it? How does it progress? What's the prognosis for patients? And, and how are people treated? Well,
1: um, cystic fibrosis is genetic, um, meaning you are born with it. So a lot of times what happens in the uh, cystic fibrosis community is you know, patients aren't or were for a long time not diagnosed until a few years into it, even though they had it from birth. And in those few years, you know, the CF progresses um, more rapidly without treatment. Uh, it's also progressive, which means as you get older, it gets worse, and the amount of treatments and medications you have to take in order to manage it increase. Um, and in a lot of cases, it's terminal. Uh, the life expectancy for me when I was born was around 10 years old. Uh, and it's purely been moving forward and forward as modern medicine and technology progress um, But predominantly what happens with people who have are aretoclerosis is an overload of mucus accumulates in the body. so it kind of forms in the areas where mucus not accumulates: the lungs and the sinuses and you know the intestines and the stomach and, um, and it causes a multitude of different issues in different organs. So in the lungs, you have you know a chronic infection that gets caught in the mucus. You get, get sick. You get bronchitis. You get asthma. You get kind of all of it wrapped into one, um, and uh, and you know the predominant kind of cause of death in people who are sick is lung failure. So your lungs are obviously the most you know crucial piece of the puzzle, which is why I'm on, on uh, supplementary oxygen twenty four seven. And you know in the not and the sinuses it causes fetus infection, the stomach slows down, kind of just does a, a ripple effect disease You also can sometimes develop uh, diabetes from it um, due to the the pancreas and due to overload of uh, steroid use, um, inflammation. So it kind of is one of those diseases that starts with one thing, but as you get older, it causes kind of a whole bunch of uh, issues. One of the big kind of uh, factors with people who have cystic fibrosis is the amount of time and energy that it takes to take care of someone with CF. There's there's a lot of um, illnesses out there where, you know, it's a sort of you take a few medications and the medications either work or they don't work. You know what I mean? Or you go in for treatment, you go in for chemo, you go in for something like that and it either does the trick or it doesn't.
0: Let's put some numbers to that because I don't think people generally appreciate the, what it takes to manage the disease. Um, how many drugs do you take? How many hours a day do you give yourself treatments? How many surgeries have you had? H- how much time have you spent in a hospital?
1: Right. Yeah. That's uh, yeah. Definitely what I was working towards there. Um, I so my my um, I'm 20 years old, and um, in my life, I've spent around a quarter, um, maybe more, in the hospital. Normally, it's every two months or so. You go in for three weeks to a month, um, and that really kind of adds up throughout your lifetime. So um, the thing with C S is, is, it takes such a constant tweaking of the medications. You're on like I was just saying, it's not just one medication that either works or doesn't work. It's a huge. I mean, I have an entire um, what is uh uh Cabinet <laughs> of medications. Last time I checked, I was around. I was on around fifty. Uh, Sometimes it breaches up into the 75 range. Sometimes, if I'm lucky, down into the 40s. But it's always kind of, you know, uh, higher numbers than what most people have to deal with as far as medications go. Uh, I'm also on insulin, so I do shots, blood sugar. Uh, I do seeds overnight, which is like a a tube that I hook up to that pretty much puts straight. nutrients into my stomach as I sleep, because one of the things with CF is you burn a lot of calories. So I get around 4,000 to 5,000 calories in in a day, and that has me barely um, reaching 100 pounds. So it's a very, you kind of really have to stay on top of it. There's also a good four hours of breathing treatments in a day, Um, you know, three if you're having a good day, (laughs) Uh, which involves putting on a vest. It inflates and shakes your lungs and looses the mucus off the walls of your lungs. Um, it involves aerosolized medications. It involves puffers and a bunch of puff coughs, which is like a forced um, cough to try and clear your lungs. So what ends up happening when you have that much, you know, it, when when your illness is that much of a job? What happens in a lot of people's CF is they just, you know, if you're doing this day after day after day, but yet you still have a progressive illness, which means even if you do all of your treatments perfectly, even if you are, you know, very compliant and you put all your energy into it and you treat it like a full-time job, even then, you're still going to get sicker as you get older. And so it sets up this kind of um, mental state of patients really needing to find something that Bigger than just an illness to live for and to hold on to in order to be able to take care of themselves, you know. So, I think as much as it's a physically draining illness, it's also very emotionally draining illness because you have to find, um, you have to find a reason for doing all of it that's a bit more than just you know, getting better or fixing yourself because that reasoning, you know, is this isn't going to work out in the long run. I
0: know you've Talked about the the lack of role models you had early on when you were growing up, and then one day you discovered Stephen Hawking, the the astrophysicist who has ALS.
1: <laughs> you were about eleven yeah. years
0: old. What happened, and what what did that ha- what meaning did that have for you?
1: Right. Well, um, that's so funny that you mentioned that. Uh, I remember I talked about that recently. But um, you know, for me, there, there's, I think this is for a lot of people with with chronic illness and. You know, maybe CF, especially, uh, is that you grow up kind of in a weird bubble where you don't see very many people that are like you, or people who are sick, um, but who are functioning and who are really contributing something of value into the world. You know, you see um, you see versions of sick people that are, you know, either in, in you know, where you, you see them kind of on TV shows sometimes or, you know, as kind of character devices, in, you know, on Grey's Anatomy, but they always end up just you know kind of having short roles, and and sometimes they pass away, and you know, there's not much to them. You don't see, you don't really have very many role models of people who are sick who are really contributing something to the world. So when I first uh, around I days maybe eleven maybe 12, um, I read a bunch of Stephen Hawking's, and um, I thought it was, I loved it. I was a huge nerd, and and it just made me feel like. You know, the things about myself that I uh, wish I could change things I wish that were different in the end didn't really matter, right? But it doesn't, it doesn't really matter, you know, if we're sick or healthy or rich or poor or whatever it is, right? Like we are people who are alive and have and a tremendous kind of honor to be a part of what the universe, you know? So I, I love the same stuff that was and I didn't even know about his condition at the time. And when I found out, I think it was just really big, kind of epiphany that you could be um, sick and you could be disabled, but you can still be um, a huge contributing member to society. You know, you can still make something of real value to your life. You don't have to put your life on hold just because it doesn't look like everyone else's, you know. And that was huge for me because I had felt for so many years like all that I was doing with my time was taking care of myself. What was I really giving to the world? What was I really, you know, um, uh, what was I really, what was really my value kind of in the whole besides just being someone that was sitting on the sidelines waiting until the day I was healthy in order to, you know, then have a life. Uh, So, you know, I think what's really important to teach people who are sick, especially if it's from a young age, that, you know, that it, it doesn't, life isn't about a sort of race to get healthy or a race to get better, to fix yourself. It's about, you know, what you make from your experience and, you know, and what you have to give to the world. And then, you know, and that's, um, and then you have a lot more, you know, self-pride and motivation in order to take care of yourself.
0: How did Claire's Place Foundation come about? What What led you to create that?
1: Well, <laughs> um, it's, a, it's not a long story, so <laughs> I'll try and abbreviate it, but I was um, kind of 13 years old, and I ended up going in for a kind of a, a fairly routine operation, but ended up um, getting blood, you know, sepsis in, uh, in the OR. This is, is, is a life-threatening blood, blood
0: infection. infection,
1: yeah. Yeah, it was a severe blood infection, and it attacked kind of the weakest part of your body which were at the time was my lungs so I went into full-on lung failure and um and ended up having to be intubated and in a coma for around three weeks uh and when I was so eventually taken off of, of the ventilator and all that I was told that I had only had a one percent share of surviving um and it took months to recover from that and months of me learning how to hold a fork again and and how to walk again, and, you know, um, really just kind of how to regain my strength. And during that time, I was very bedridden. And what I noticed as I was there, and I was spending a lot of time thinking, and, and my parents noticed this as well, is that, you know, there is so much external support that's needed for families who are sick, uh, families who have, you know, kids with sick or families that are de- dealing with chronic illness in general. Um, there's huge support system that's necessary to get them through the times when their kids are that sick. Because a lot of families, you know, who, who deal with cystic fibrosis are either, you know, single-income families where one parent has to take off work in order to take care of the child because of how much, you know, time and energy having a kid with CF takes. Or they are single-parent households where there is only one parent and that parent has to work to provide for the kid and the other children but then no one is there to be with the child when they're in the hospital because the parents have to go to work and have to, you know, pay the bill. So during that time period where I was recovering, we really realized that there's a need in the sick fibrosis community for a foundation that gives financial and emotional support um, in the time that it takes before there's a cure, you know, because right now all of before, you know, before I was most of the money that was raised for cystic fibrosis went to finding a cure, which is wonderful, and, and of course I'm all about finding a cure, but there's still people living with CF in their day, you know, day-to-day lives. especially so when people are trying to have a good quality of life while they're um, you know, living with CF. Uh, and we can't just expect everyone to you know, put their lives on hold and not have any issues until the day that the cure comes. They're still trying to live, they're just still trying to have a good life and provide for their family and all that waiting around for the cure. So, you know, so we decided to kind of be that support system for them. Um, and now what we do battle expenses if they need to get to a different hospital or if they're in the process of lung transplant. Um, a lot of people don't know when you get a lung transplant, you have to, the parents have to have uh, a housing area that's close to the hospital, and a lot of times the hospitals they get the transplant at are not close to home, which means they have to be paying for their their bills back at home and also paying for an apartment for around six months while the kid is recovering. And that's a huge expense that a lot of families can't um, afford, and insurance, of course, doesn't help with that. So, you know, those are kind of some of the things that we can do to support the CF community and help them actually be with their kids and give them the kind of support the kids need in order to recover and get better.
0: I know there's been some disputes over your previous YouTube channel and, and the Clarity Project, and there's now a new channel that you've launched, but I, I find these videos to be very intimate, full of personality, and full of wisdom. And you're not afraid to talk about death or dying. You're, you talk about what it's like to be in a coma. Uh, the secret here is that these are very life-affirming, even though the topics may not sound that way.
1: <laughs> you you seem
0: Comfortable talking about your own mortality. When did you first decide to do that, and why?
1: Well, I think I've, um, I think I've always been very comfortable with it because I don't really find that talking about um, the hard stuff negates talking about the beautiful things. I think that, in fact, they're they're kind of one and the same. They're kind of two sides of of the same coin. And oftentimes, when you know when you talk about people who are who are quote-unquote positive or inspirational, there's kind of this notion that they they ignore the bad stuff or they make the bad stuff into good stuff. And But what I really kind of loved the concept of is that someone can, you know, you can be someone who's sick and be someone who's dying and be someone who's different from everyone else and who has, you know, a harder life experience. And yet so... You know, be, um, you know, and yet still be okay with life, you know, still be a functioning person. You don't have to be perfect in order to make something good in the world. And, um, and so I kind of figured, you know, the best way as a teenager at the time and, and, you know, obviously into YouTube, but most teenagers, you know, we all just zone out on YouTube. Um, and I figured kind of the best way to do that is maybe to make videos about it and talk about it and just humanize um, you know, humanize people who are sick and people who are suffering really, people who are, who are not, um, you know, living the false ideal of having a perfect life, but who are very much, you know, um, are just very much, uh, on the outskirts of life that you can, you can humanize them and you can say, look, this is someone who's, you know, from my personal experience, I'm someone who has had close experience with dying and with being in pain and being different, and being alone and, and all of that and yet I'm okay you know And yet I I have still something to offer to the world and I think that that's where it, I think that that's why it's hopeful because I'm not saying that everything's okay I'm not saying that I'm fine and that I don't you know that I don't feel the challenges that come along with yes and I don't you know <laughs> and I don't um worry about the things I'm saying I do, and yet there's still life to be lived, and yet there's still things to do, and, and, um, and so I think, you know, it was really, I started the YouTube channel kind of just as a way to try and make people feel more comfortable with what they're going through, and realize that, you know, having, having a diagnosis, or any diagnosis in general, should not put your entire life on hold.
0: As you mentioned, you've had near-death experiences. You you flatlined at one point in a hospital elevator. You've had plenty of reasons to think about that, but there's one video where you talk about the bucket list misconception. I'm wondering if you can speak to that. Yeah, of course.
1: Um, so I think there's these, you know people kind of tend to think um, that, when you find out you're dying, you all of a sudden have this rush to try and check a bunch of you know um, tasks off your list of things you want to do before you die, right? Which is like the bucket list, the grandiose. The grandiose concept that like you know if you if you do all of these things, if you jump out of an airplane or go bungee jumping or travel to certain countries or you know experience certain things that you are going to then be okay with dying and that it, you know, you're know you going to have checked everything off your list and you know be able to wipe your hands and say that's bad, that. I, I lived a good life, you know. Um, but what I found from actually being in that position, from being someone who, since the moment I was born, knew that I wasn't going to live as long as others and that you know, there's always kind of been a um, there's always been like a, an end goal <laughs> or an end place that is very kind of insight right like when I was in high school they were saying maybe around 19 or 20 when I was going to um, you know get too sick to live my life anymore so I've always kind of known that death was really close at hand and um, and what I found is that I don't have a need to go out and conquer the world and and jump out of planes and you know uh, do all that crazy stuff what I wanted then to be able to live my life slowly and with meaning and connection and actually just go through the process of being alive. You know, I think that it's, it's this, we have this notion that life is like a, you know, um, life is like a grocery list, like there's things that we have to experience and things we have to be in order to be okay when we die. But the truth is, it's just the experience of being alive. It's important at the end. Whatever that experience is, you know, and I think a lot of times people try and um, negate their own experience of life. They try and negate their own pain, or negate their own, you know, joy, or negate what their experience, their personal experience of it has been. But really, that's the only thing that you should be holding on to. You know, is your your slow unfolding of who you are and where your place is. And the people that are in your life. Like it's not it's not a giant race to get all these you know, to accomplish all these things or to, be, you know, to say, Okay, there we go, I've done I've gone through the motions of being alive. Now I'm okay to die. The truth is that when you are dying, it doesn't matter how many things you've checked off the list, it doesn't matter how okay you think you are with dying, it's still going to be terrifying. Because you're letting go of of your life, and that should be terrifying. Like, you should feel a sort of grief for your own life because life is really an incredible realm um, well of, of possibility. You know? and so there's there's, um, there's no amount of you know, going through the motions and saying, okay, now I've done everything. Now I'm going to be okay letting it go. You never are going to be okay letting it go. So instead of trying to run through your life like it's some giant checklist, Better to just experience it, to experience everything that hits you, and to learn from everything that you know. It gets put in front of you, and to really genuinely experience it and make something from that experience—that's going to give you so much more pride at the end um, than having bungee jumps, you know. So uh, yeah,
0: you you express a certain gratitude for your illness—not not that you enjoy being sick, but that it has given you something. It's enriched you somehow. That. Your suffering has allowed you to make something of it to give to other people. Can can you explain?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I really, one of my big kind of beliefs in life is that to be alive, um, no matter your circumstance, is to suffer, you know? And, And I think a lot of times when I say that, people think I mean that in a very, and dramatic and, and sad way, but I mean that I think part of the human condition, no matter what circumstance you, you are in, um, is to feel, you know, uh, to feel alone and, and, and off and gross and, uh, and miserable sometimes. That's just part of being a human being. And, um, and I think that people try and compartmentalize it, people try and say, you know, if you're in this experience, if you're sick, if you're poor, if you're whatever, you have you know, there's there's your life is less than everyone else's, right? You have more of a burden than everyone else. You have um you know, your life is automatically gonna be less enjoyable than everyone else. But I would I would go so far as to say that, you know, <coughs> at the end of the day your your health has very little to do with how happy you are as a person, you know. Like I remember remember being a kid and and growing up in an hospital and um, you know, and feeling really content in my hospital room and like, you know, I have my um to listen to music, have my hospital room all decorated, just be chilling, and know, hanging out with the nurses, doing arts and crafts projects that little kids like to do, you know, the whole thing. And, uh, and people would come to visit me, friends of, you little know, friends and family and all that. And they'd come to visit and they'd have books from their face and they'd say, I'm so sorry for you. I'm so sorry you have to go through this. Um, and I'd brush it off and like no, 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 I'm fine. And as we got to talking about their lives, you know, it always came out down the line cause they were miserable and they were happy with their lives. Um, and, you know, and so I started to kind of piece together this notion that Maybe, you know, health is not the factor that determines whether you're okay in life. Maybe no circumstances. Maybe we all are experiencing the same amount of suffering and the same amount of joy and the same amount of, you know, the um, same amount of loneliness, same amount of frustration, the same amount of, 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 in, of motivation. You know, maybe we all are kind of, you know, along little ways going through the same sort of experience of life. And um, I started to realize that what really makes the difference between whether someone's okay in life or not okay isn't their sense, it isn't what they come from. It's what they are giving of themselves to the world. Right? That that's where kind of the true um, the true satisfaction, I would say, in life comes from is, is what you're giving to the whole. You know, because if you think about really what makes us different from other species of animals, isn't that we have bigger brains necessarily, or opposable thumbs? It's that we've managed each generation managed to take what was there and to add on to it, right? Like, like you know, there's there's um there's species of apes that can make tools. just fine. Like they can make little hand tools. They can make these little contraptions in order to pull. Uh, termites out of of mounds and all that, Um, but they don't build upon those dimension. So each generation is passed down, but it doesn't ever evolve. It doesn't ever change or grow. Versus human beings, everything that we experience, right? we go through the world, we go through our experience, we go through life, we learn from it, and then we build onto it, we add onto it. We give something of ourselves back to the world, back to life. And uh, and what I found is that's really what makes the difference for people. That's what that's what changes, you know, whether they're, whether they're okay with themselves in their way and whether they're happy with the lives and proud of the lives that they've lived isn't determined on, you know, whether or not they think lived a perfect life or a normal life or a quote-unquote good life, right? It's whether or not they have given something that they believe is valuable to the world, and really we been a contributing member. And I think something that I'm so, I'm so lucky that I figured it out at such a young age, in my own opinion, <laughs> uh, I'm really lucky that I had sort of physical versus acted as like a magnifying glass for all the problems in my life. And, you know, and everything that I think takes people a long time to work through was kind of magnified at a really young age for me. I got to kind of come to terms with the fact that at the end of the day, we're all going to lose this battle. We're all going to lose this battle against trying to be healthy because we're all going to die. We're all going to lose the battle against trying to be rich because we're all going to, again, we're going to die, we're going to lose it all. There's a kind of innate built-in failure in the human race. We're never going to overcome our own humanness. And maybe that's not the point. Maybe the point isn't to fix ourselves the point isn't to get rid of all of our problems. The point is to learn how to make something of them and to learn how to make something of ourselves And um, in spite of where we're at or what we're going through. <clears throat> so I think I really have I've gotten to do that to the foundation. I've gotten to really give, you know, the, the only reason this foundation is successful is because what we do came from personal experience. We're helping these people because we were those people. We were the family that needed help. We were the family that, you know, couldn't always stay together and that had multiple jobs going. And we always, you know, the parents were always losing jobs, and and um, that was our experience. And instead of, you know, instead of just feeling sorry for ourselves and feeling sorry for what we were going through, we found a way to actually. Set something up in order to learn from that experience and gain from that experience. I mean, what really matters to people, um, and I'm really, I'm really proud of what we're able to do. And I'm really proud of of my life, not in spite of having CF, but <laughs> because of it. In my life.
0: In in one of your videos, you talk about your favorite books, and, and a lot of the titles I don't think would be shocking to anyone, but in, in the midst of this, you, you talk about Letters to a Young Poet, or Rainier Marie Rilke's book, which, which struck me as a little out of place in, in that lineup. What strikes me about this is the way he talks about embracing your own circumstances, all the good and the bad, not turning away from any part of the totality of the experience of one's life. I'm wondering, is that what spoke to you? Were there other aspects?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, there was a lot in that, actually. Um, I read that when I was young, and I, it was one of the first books that I ever read, where I felt like everything that he was saying was things that I had thought about in my own brain, right? Like the notion that, um, there's this one really beautiful part where he's in Rome, and he's, um, He's writing about, you know, his experience of Rome and seeing all the beautiful sites and he talks about how, you know, on one level it's beautiful here. There's cathedrals and it's like a a city of of art and a city of sculptures and, you know, and all that. But at the same time he says that I also acknowledge that it's no more beautiful than any other place on earth. Um, and that every single you know, in every single place where you are, in every single corner of the world. Has just the same amount of life breathed into it. It has just the same amount of experience, just because it's not something that we, you know, we as a chosen realm to be this exception and this and this, you know, grandiose version of life. But if you look deep enough, anywhere you are, there's that much culture. There's that much history. There's that much um, life everywhere, and it's you know, and and I just I love that because I feel that way, not just about places, but also about experiences. Like we decide that someone's experience of life is, is better than everyone else's and we decide that that experience is, is more grand and more, you know, um beautiful than everyone else's. But if you go kind of deep enough into any experience of life, you find that it's just as complex, it's just as real, it's just as um, as beautiful in a lot of ways. So there is that and, and you know, there's also a lot of notions in there about um you know, about just kind of the changing of the world and the changing of our feelings and emotions and, and of time and how, you know, there's a sort of, um, you know, you have to be really, really sure in who you are, what you believe in, what you value in the world. <clears throat> and hold on to that above all else, you know, above, above circumstances, above material things and above all that. You have to have a strong sense of who you are. And, and a pride in your experience of life. Um, And that if you have that, you know, there's there's very little that can can shake you And I, die since you release that.
0: Uh, You've you've said the stuff worth doing is the stuff you're called to do because the world needs it. I I think it's very easy for someone with a a life-threatening and progressive illness to become a bit focused on their own issues and challenges. How did you come to embrace helping others, and, and what has that meant for you?
1: Um, well, I think that it wasn't, I think part of what I like to say is that really good things come from necessity. So it's when there is no other way of doing it. And that's very much what I feel about, um, about the stuff that I do in the world is that I didn't really have a choice because I was spending so many hours every day on my own treatment, on my own health care, on, you know, checking in on myself, how am I doing, how do I feel, what do I need, uh, all that kind of stuff, and so was everyone else in my life, I mean, everyone was focused, everyone is focused on, on you know, how do we help you, How do, what do you need, how do we need to take care of this or take care of that, uh, and it started to just weigh on me so heavily, this, um, you know, this just kind of endless stream of, you um, of trying to fix myself and I was straining, of trying to make sure that I was okay, and it became exhausting. and Day after day after day, the same thing, and the same treatment, uh, and the same pills, and yet I was getting sicker. I was getting sicker and sicker and sicker every day, even though I was doing more and more and more work. <clears throat> so I kind of, you know, I think what happens when you start to be a teenager is you just start losing strength, start losing steam. Because you've been doing that for so many years that you start thinking, well, I'm just going to do this until, you know, the end of my life. It's just going to be more and more work and less and less reward until the day that I die. And and so you kind of have to find something that is that, you know, some, you have to find something to hold on to. Like I said, uh, in the beginning, that's more than just your own health. It's more than just your own illness, um, Or else you will not do what it takes to take care of yourself because you'll lose you know, it's like your battery will run out and you will be running on an empty an empty tank so there kind of just became a point where I had to choose to stop caring about myself in a certain way you know to just kind of <clears throat> care about something a bit bigger a bit more than than me and then my own health and and the moment that I did that so what's interesting is the moment that I started to really put myself into into you know, work, into having a responsibility, into having um, sort of a, a mission, so to say, uh, all of a sudden it became so much easier to take care of myself. It became so much easier to show up for myself because I wasn't doing it to fix myself. I wasn't doing it for some arbitrary goal in the future. I was doing it so that I could be healthy enough to get back to doing what I felt was important. And that little small shift made such a huge difference. And the moment I started doing things for something bigger than, than myself, I, it automatically kind of became easier to take care of myself. So I really I learned how to be a, a contributing <coughs> a contributing member of society, not because I wanted to be better or because I, I thought it was the right thing to do or that I should do it, but because I had to. I really had to find something that was bigger than me, or else. I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't have, you know, been able to work as hard as I have for this many years and get to where I am, you know. And and I'm someone who's, I'm a very rare case in the in the CF world. Very few um, people with CF move out completely on their own to their own apartment at 18 and have a job and then pay their own bills and you know, that's a big kind of anomaly in the diversity versus world. Normally there's like a, a lot more transition time <laughs> um, and so you know, the only reason I was really able to do any of that because I really fiercely needed to be doing things to prove to myself that I was capable, that I was a valuable member of the kind of <laughs> a human race. or else I wouldn't want to be putting so much energy into myself. I wouldn't know what the point was. So yeah, so I think really the beautiful things in life and the things that are worth putting your energy into are things that you do out of out of necessity, not out of trying to be a good person, not out of thinking this will make me a better person. But out of I have to do this. This is who I have to be in order to be okay. Um and that's the stuff too that really lasts and that people really I think really resonate with people.
0: You're in college now. What are you studying, and do you think about long-term plans?
1: Yeah, uh, I I am in college. I'm taking a little break um, right now just because my health has been really rough the past month or so. Um, So I'm just taking a quick break. But I'm studying anthropology, which has always been something I'm very fascinated by, uh, and plan on kind of going into the field of of, uh, medical anthropology if possible. but you know, at the same time, I kind of I understand that you know, there's there's so much on um, on the plate as someone's BF, yes. and and I kind of want to be able to you know contribute something into the world right now, and not wait until you know not wait until graduation. So it's all about kind of finding the balance of <laughs> of how much energy to put in different places, you know. Uh, so I'm still trying to find that balance with me for sure.
0: Claire Wendland, founder of Claire Place Foundation, public speaker, patient advocate, and Champion of Hope Award winner. Claire, thanks so much for your time.
1: Thank you so much. It's wonderful.
0: Thanks for listening.
1: For more information
0: about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org.